Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with, great, and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. This is the word of God today. Let's pray for Pastor Mike as he comes to share. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these written words by your best friend, Lord, through whom you spoke to us. And we pray today that these words would ring true in our hearts, Lord, and that they'd be spoken today, Lord, by Pastor Mike as he comes to share your words Lord, may our hearts be open to receive what you would say to your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, Nicole. Glad you're here. Thank Nicole for stepping in for Diane this morning. She's awesome, as always. So well done, Nicole. Thank you. We're glad you're here. Nicole is pursuing her medical degree at the University of Iowa uh, med school. Um, I just want to start my talk this morning by saying this. I love the Methodists. I do. Amen? Yeah, come on. I love the Methodists, and I'll tell you why. A couple things. There's a million things, but I want to tell you a couple of them this morning. On, on, uh, on uh, 4th of July, I uh, got a text message. Uh, summary is, we need some help. Basement's flooded. Can't do it ourselves. Single mom. And so I put out a text message to the Methodists. I needed six people to show up yesterday morning. We had 16. 
You know what I'm saying? We cleaned out that basement. We cleaned out a bunch of stuff. We did all kinds of things, all for the glory of God and for that family uh, that needed our help right now. I love the Methodists. Amen? I mean, I love the Methodists. Uh, I know it's been made mention in our prayers that later today, Pastor Keith and I are going to go up. We're going to join uh, Simon Campbell, who's our praise leader later. We're also going to join Leandra and Kelsey, who are summer ministry interns that are already down at summer games, for a week of summer games. And it's a lot of fun, I will tell you that. More for the kids, maybe, than the pastors, because we get to deal with the problems and they just make them. All right? Uh, amen? <laughs> but, but here's why I want to tell you I love the Methodists. Because of your huge, massive support for our campaign ministry. Over 100 of our students will get to hear the gospel in a way that is targeted towards 6th through 12th graders. Over 100 of them are going. Now, if you do some quick math in your mind, and you can, that's $275 per person. Our summer games budget's over $160,000 this year. Now, the, the fact of the matter is that when you take, take students and you discount them, which you do, at $125 a piece, and you have over 100 going, think of the money that the Methodists have given to make sure their students get to hear the pure message of Jesus Christ as preached at summer games. Not only that, but we've received about a dozen or more full-pay scholarships. So the mass of money that you've put towards summer games is astonishing. And I love the Methodists in regards to summer games because of this. Jesus says, where your money goes, there is your heart as well. Okay, and you have put your heart into this ministry for, for our students to go to summer games, the ministry that you saw on your screens a few moments ago. I love the Methodists, okay? Because I love Jesus and I love Jesus uh, and his work that we do together here at First United Methodist Church. So thank you. And, and God bless you all. I will continue to love you, even if you don't do anything at all, but I am pretty certain you're going to continue to do things for Jesus Christ. So amen. Amen? All right, let's, let's preach a little bit. Kind of almost sounded like I was there for a minute. Just wait. This morning, Pastor Keith and I begin a uh, journey through the book of 1 Peter. Um, we're going to camp out there in First Peter for uh, all of July and August. And I want to make sure you don't have any assumptions about First Peter. You know, we live a lot of our life with assumptions. I was walking through, and I, I get accused falsely sometimes, but, but I was walking through Caring Corner the other day downstairs in our basement when they were having snack time. Now, I get accused of walking through there when they're having snack time. I don't know why that is. But the children were having snack time, so I thought, well, I'm a pastor. I should certainly stop and engage with them, right? They were having what they thought were Oreos. They're actually cheap, off-brand ones. But they were doing the best they could to unscrew them. And one of the little boys at the end of the table was taking his Oreo apart and licking the frosting, you know, the inner or whatever it is, the sugary mix in there. And I just started talking to him for a minute. And then he asked one of the most profound questions I'd had that day. He said to me, Pastor Mike or as they pronounce it in preschool, pass a mic. Why do Oreos exist? I have to admit, that's a query I'd never uh, had come towards me before. And I thought to myself quickly, this is a boy that's quite serious and sincere in his quest for knowledge. And so I said, because they're tasty. And he said, are you sure? 
kind of rattled me a little bit. I wasn't so sure I was sure, so I thought I'd take a crack at it. And I said, well, you know, this is the way it happened. You know, a long time ago, some moms made some cookies that were kind of like Oreos. They made them at home, but they weren't very cost-effective. They were kind of expensive, and they were hard to make. So they sent their kids to college, and the kids got chemistry degrees and some home economic degrees, and they began, you know, mixing recipes together, and they came up with a formula for Oreos that they could make millions of, package them in, in plastic packages, and send them to boys and girls all over the world. Really, Pastor Mike? Oh, yes. Well, why did they do that? Because they're tasty. I thought so, he said. <laughs> but I didn't want to assume anything. So when we look at the, at the scriptures of the Bible, let's not assume anything. Why does one Peter, the little small Christian treatise, one Peter exist at all? You can write this down if you're going to write anything, because this is the key to the whole thing. 1 Peter exists to offer encouragement to suffering Christians. That's why it exists. 1 Peter exists to offer encouragement to suffering Christians. You see, this is what's going on. Let me give you context, because we're going to camp out on this for, for two months. So here's what's happening as we get to 1 Peter. There were many, many witnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Human beings that lived in real time and at real place in and around the area of Jerusalem. And they saw Jesus be humiliated. They saw him beaten. They saw him ultimately crucified. And they saw him die, a real physical death of a human being. And then many of them saw the resurrected Jesus, not just those that saw him on Sunday morning or on the walk to Emmaus that Sunday evening, but for 40 days, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, met with his disciples and taught them the great things of the kingdom. And after 40 days, many of them saw him with their own eyes. They were witnesses to these things, saw him ascend into the clouds with the angels into heaven. And they waited as he instructed and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and gave them holy utterance. And they began to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ and to teach the good news. And it's on that day of Pentecost where Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, representative of all the disciples, the, our leader because he's representative of all disciples, because he, he shows us a lot in scriptures. He acts the way we'd probably act. But Peter who had before been quite frail of character and difficult to find words to speak to support Jesus. But he stood in Jerusalem and preached on that Pentecost, and you can see it in Acts chapter 2, the very first Christian sermon ever preached. And thousands that day became converts to the faith that is Jesus. Thousands were added to them that day, and day by day the Lord added to their number. Now, parallel to that growth, you have the church growing over here. Parallel to that growth is the growth of persecution in the Roman Empire. Understand that Jesus' death was a death of persecution. So his faith, those that follow him, understand where they're growing. They're growing not in some far-off land, but the faith is growing right near where Jesus was persecuted, where he was crucified, and where he was killed. And, and so as this, as, this, as this growth in the church happens, the resistance to that growth is happening at the same time. And that is why 1 Peter exists to offer encouragement to suffering Christians. You see, Christianity did not sink with 
Roman society, nor does it sync with our society today. Social persecution began almost immediately. You know, they, they weren't so willing, that whole culture, to, to, it wasn't so palatable for them to start killing a bunch of Christians. You can find this recorded in Acts as well. They thought killing the leader, Jesus, would about take care of things, but it didn't. So they decided to go other directions. So they went with social persecution first. You see, they, Christians were scorned because they lived lives of faith, uh, not generated by economic power, not generated by, by things that they could gain with their own hands. They were living lives of faith, and they were because of that, they were put down because that seemed to, to, to many to be superstitious hokum. Christians did not believe that just because something was lawful, that that made it righteous. Just because something was legal, that didn't make it right. doesn't make it right today either. So therefore, the morality did not go along with the prevailing culture. And so their morality was criticized as well. And their hope in eternal life, which was kind of not new exactly, but new for such a massive, persistent, and intense movement was mocked by all those. So persecution, this social persecution started to range from trumped up charges where they'd get people thrown into to jail, which of course takes away your income, to, to insults, to of course business embargoes. That's one of the persecutions that, that isn't often talked about is that, that the Roman Empire or people in that would, would kind of collaborate and say, hey, don't do uh, any more business with Joe the carpenter because he's a Christian. So the Christians were struggling. They were being persecuted. And you know what happened? At the very same time, the church was flourishing. The church was flourishing, not because it was some good idea, but because it was based on the truth of God. And soon, Christian outposts were found not just around the little area of Jerusalem, but they were spread from Jerusalem to Antioch up in northern Syria. And shortly, this localized persecution begins to escalate. Ridiculous charges were thrown in Christians of every kind. And there was this guy running a feeding ministry leading it all, called Stephen. And they threw some trumped-up charges at him, took him to court, and rather than try to speak to the charges, you know what Stephen did? He spoke the gospel to them. He talked about their heritage from the creation of the world through Moses and up towards Jesus, and they were furious. And so they drug him outside the Lion's Gate, now called the St. Stephen's Gate at the Holy City of Jerusalem, and they stoned him to death killing him, the first Christian martyr. And yet, even though the Christians scattered across the world at that moment, you can read this in Acts chapter 7 and 8, the Christians were persecuted and being spread all over the world. Guess what they took with them? They took their faith and their testimonies. And wherever they set up an encampment all over the Eastern world, they began to teach Christianity. So Christianity blankets the Roman Empire. It covers the whole thing from north to south, east to west. And then Nero becomes emperor. And that's when what's known as the great persecution begins. Because Christians were put onto very deep and difficult trials under Nero. Do you know Nero would have his soldiers ride into a home, swords drawn, spears at the ready. And they would take the father of the home. And they would come to him with their spears drawn, their swords at the ready. And say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? crucified, resurrected, ascended. If so, and you proclaim that, we will kill you and your family here, right now. But if you deny Jesus Christ and you say it's a pointless myth, you'll be free to go. And thousands of men, and therefore many children, 
and families. We're willing to face the end of the sword or spear because they believed that Jesus Christ was true. And the persecution began to escalate all throughout the Roman Empire. Not only were they killing Christians, but those they thought were Christians, they were saying horrible things about. They were mistreating them. And, and Christians being human, because we all are, everyone that's ever been a Christian is a human, just like them, we would feel the same way and do sometimes, were tempted to retaliate or compromise their godly lifestyle because of the grief that it caused them. I mean, when you start losing your brothers and sisters because of their faith, when you start losing your businesses and your home because of what you believe, it is hard not to want to rear up and take something out on someone. And it's into those feelings that the apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter, writes this short little book that exists to offer encouragement to suffering Christians. And the premise is simple and it holds true today. Christians are living in a world dominated by an anti-Christian way of life, morality, and values. Do you believe that to be true? It's a yes or no question. Now, that's a hard one to stomach when you hear it all like that. Here's the premise of 1 Peter. Christians are living in a world that is dominated by anti-Christian ways of life, morality, and values. Now, I'm not going to give a long treatise on that, although I have it within my ability. Anybody who's been to summer games knows I do. Because, see, I get to preach all four sermons together at once at camp. Let's look. Do we have a Christian way of life? John Wesley, founder of the United Methodist Church and our various traditions, said that Scripture is the primary resource for faith in life. That is to say, if anything comes to you in, in your life, you are to evaluate it by the teachings of the Old and New Testament. And if it holds water against the Scriptures, then it's valid and right behavior. If it does not, it is not. Now into that, Gallup poll reported one year ago that 28% of Americans, 28%, that's less than half, that's barely over a quarter, 28% of Americans living in the United States today see Scriptures as a primary resource for their life today. That is not a Christian context or culture. And if you were to watch five minutes of TV, you'll find that typically scriptural teachers are punchlines or they're references to archaic values or draconian rules. This is not a Christian way of life in the U.S. And we're also living in, in a world where Christian morale, morals are trying to be thrown out the world, out the window. And, and let's not go into a, a long definition of that because we could spend hours on, and if you want to Google around this afternoon or run around on Bing finding out what Christian morals are defined as, there's a lot. But, but let me just say it this way, that I think Christian morals, we're living a moral lifestyle, is applying God's life and our pub, God's laws in our private and our public behavior. Private and public. Now, now we can say the laws, let's go with the Ten Commandments and, and, and the, maybe add the golden real rule, you know, do unto others as you'd have de- done unto us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbors yourself. Those kind of things. So if that's your baseline for Christian, Christian morals, we find that that is not where the culture is leaning into today. There, there are these things called ethical egoism. You know, ethical, ethical egoism, you've heard it lots of times. Doesn't matter if you're sitting at high V or in a college classroom. The idea is it's all about you. No matter what's happening, whatever is your truth, whatever is right for you, whatever you value, 
that's what's true. But that is not what's moral. Just because it's legal doesn't make it righteous. There's also this thing called relativism, relativism that's all, which means there's nothing really good or bad. You ever had someone tell you a joke and say, well, it's not that bad? I always tell students like this. I said, once you've told me something's not that bad, you've already told me what it is, right? I was at Linmar a couple of years ago, and I had a little, cup of, uh, a little cup of yogurt, about this big. cup of yogurt. You can see right in it. And I took, with a knife, and I cut off a, a slice about the size of an eraser head, right? Of dog poop. And I stirred it in there. And I said, who wants to take a bite? And they're like, there's dog poop in there. I said, it's not that bad. It's not all dog poop. Right? We say that about our behavior all the time. It's not that bad. Look, things are either good or bad. They just are. It, there, there's not a lot of middle, middle ground. But in, in morals, we say, hey, nothing's really good or bad. What we say is okay. And here's what's happened. As this kind of values, these kind of values have be- gained widespread acceptance over the last 50 years, here's what's increased. Youth suicide, youth pregnancy, drug addiction, violent crimes, mental illness, and a ton of other social ills have escalated. So, in the most recent study uh, given by uh, Time, uh, New York Times, 80% of Americans, get this, this is kind of complex, 80% of Americans believe a decline in morals is our continent's most grave problem. The most grave problem in the North American continent, according to the New York Times, is a uh, fact that morals have dropped. Therefore, ethics must be taught in our schools as long as they're not faith-based. What the heck? We're living in the minority. First of all, it's a lot to put on teachers. You know, reading, writing, arithmetic, computers, all that kind of stuff. Also have to be the moral fiber and guide of our our towns, we've always kind of expected them to be and, and, and done a good job at it. But, but this and, and families, that's where we teach morals. But, but Christian morals have become minority values. And, and let's look also about Christian values. And we could go through them all. Faith in God, people look at it as superstition. Respect and responsibility, people don't see that as their job. Self-control and moderation, hey, look, if I'm not hurting anybody, I'm not hurting anyone but myself. Well, tell you what, if you're smoking crack, you're hurting everybody. If you're stealing from the government, you're hurting everybody. If you're doing something in your bedroom, hey, God sees everything. Plus, you take your private behavior and you write it large in public. That's just the way it is. When we say, I'm not hurting anyone except myself, that's just simply not true. We talk about honesty and integrity and say, if I don't get caught, what's the big deal? In kindness and compassion, we say, hey, man, when I was in a tough situation, no one did this for me. Those are Christian morals and values. And we've set them all aside and into this truth. The truth that Christians are living in a world dominated by an anti-Christian way of life, morality, and values. One Peter acknowledges that anyone trying to live the Christian life, and I pray and hope that that's you, that anyone trying to live the Christian life will face significant difficulties and suffering. Therefore, the great apostle speaks words of encouragement to us and those who precede us. Now, there is opposition by erosion, which is mostly what we face in the northern and western hemisphere. Erosion of values, erosion of morals, all that. But there's also opposition by forceful invasion, which is all across our southern hemisphere. When you read about children being abducted in Nigeria, when you read about Christians being killed in Nigeria, when a friend of mine has his whole family in Congo killed because of their Christian beliefs, that is opposition by forceful invasion. So, so into that, 
and I don't know if we can balance them the same because I don't think they are. But into that, Peter writes some words of encouragement. These are overarching, and we're going we're gonna to take some of these apart a little bit later as the weeks go by. First, have confidence that God knows, plans, and directs our lives for the good. Do you have that confidence? Do you have confidence that God knows, plans, and directs your lives for the good? In many ways, known and unknown, God is leading us to a better future. We have to believe in the fact that God knew us before we were. Psalm 139 says, Before you were knit in your mother's womb, I knew you. I was thinking about you. We look at the fact that you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And by his great mercies, you are redeemed. You can be born again. And through your faith, God is protecting you. He is a shield about you. All things, and this is what Christians believed. This is why you can take on persecution, is that we believe that God is a shield about us. So even though physical things might happen to us, even though mental things might happen to us, even though we might lose our income or whatnot, we believe that God is a shield about us and that ultimately for all of time, we will be protected. So be encouraged. Secondly, when facing difficulty, it's okay ex- to express grift, gr- <laughs> grief, but we do not give in to despair or bitterness. You know, Christians, it's okay to say in the world we live in, this is hard. I feel opposed because it is not easy to stand opposed day by day in your workplace, in the places that you go, and in the culture and the television that you see and the papers that you read. But if you live your faith, you certainly will be opposed. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, and read that chapter when you get home, we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope which will not disappoint us because at just the right time, Christ died for those who did not deserve it. And we are those. And so we don't give in, even though we're tempted by bitterness, we're tempted by self-righteousness, we're tempted by quitting. We need to understand that better days are coming because God loves the Christians, and just like me, he loves the Methodists. He does. And Christians are to view the the mistreatment in this world, and we will be mistreated, as an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ our Lord. So as it says in verse 6, be truly glad. Well, there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you endure many trials for a little while. Be encouraged. And last, Have courage, because he who has suffered will not abandon us. He will not abandon us. You see, faith brings salvation. And salvation brings the promise to the day when pain will end and perfection will begin. Faith will be rewarded and, importantly, evil will be punished and eradicated. And until this, and this is not an easy answer for those of us that are Christians faithfully serve God in the here and now and be encouraged because this that we do in worship and in our daily lives for God, this is not in vain. This may be the time, and I pray that it is, when the persecuted church in North America, in the Western Hemisphere, will flourish because the Christians feeling the persecution know that these are the moments to stand fast and stand up for Jesus. Let us pray. Lord God, we ask your blessing on this day. We pray as we come forward to receive these tangible symbols of your grace.
the bread that represents your body, the cup that represents the blood you've shed for us, that in the feeling that we receive in our mouths, the tastes and the texture, we might remember that you are the fiber of our beings and you are the sweetest thing we ever need to know. For through you we have received new life and the salvation of our souls. And so we give thanks, God, for with that and with you as a shield around us, you are all that we shall need to stand. In Jesus' name, amen. United Methodist Church, Holy Communion is the highest moment that we share together. We share communion in a way that's very simplistic, and we pray for it to be inviting. So as you see on the screen, you are invited to the Lord's table. Even if you don't attend our church regularly, aren't you United Methodist? If Jesus Christ is yours, regardless of your creedal background or uh, where you might be coming from as a church, you're, you're invited. Even if you've never received communion before, you're, you're invited. I would say that if you've never taken communion before, you might not want to come first. Uh, let someone else go because we take communion in a very simplistic way. It's called intinction. There will be a tray of bread, and inside those trays there's a little glass dish. And if you're gluten uh, intolerant, you need to take a piece of bread from there. But in the, in, the, in, the, in the basket or the tray, there will be some bread. Just take a piece of, uh, of bread. It will be held for you. You just take it yourself. And then dip it into the cup that one of the worship leaders will be holding. Receive the sacrament and then come towards the center and pray here at the rail as long as you'd like and then return to your seats, if you would, through the center aisle. If you're one of our communion stewards, um, you'll, you'll be here. If you're one of our uh, homebound communion team, these colorful bags here are labeled appropriately and you can take our worship service beyond us to those that are in the nursing home or in a homebound situation. And if you're unable physically to come forward, uh, Pastor Keith will be moving around the sanctuary. So uh, if you see him and he doesn't see you, please make a, a sign and he'll come towards you. Holy Communion is like this. On the last night of his life, Lord Jesus took a common loaf of bread, offered it to his disciples, knowing the opposition that he stood in front of, and said, take and eat. This bread represents my body, and just as my body will be broken before you, so uh, is this bread broken before you. So as often as you eat bread, do so in remembrance of me. And after supper was over and all had taken their fill, the Lord took the chalice, raised it to heaven, gave thanks to his Father in heaven, and then said to his disciples, Drink from this, all of you. For in this cup is the wine which represents my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat bread, drink this wine in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of all of God's mighty acts of salvation and in hope of his strengthening our character and allowing us to endure through all opposition that comes to us, we come now, we eat the bread, we drink the wine, remembering that salvation and protection comes from God and God alone.